1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: It's Fix It Shorts with Richard and Jim. Solutions podcast in 15 minutes or less.
3: Richard, it seems like a lot of our shows lately have dealt with kids in some way, whether it's uh, about play dates and the role they play in society or, or freedom for kids or how to improve high schools. And when we launched this podcast, I don't think we thought we would be talking so much about the next generation.
1: Yeah, so today we're going to look at how kids learn, part of our Fix It Shorts podcasts. Uh, these are the ones that are under 15 minutes, just in case you're in a hurry.
3: So we decided to go back and dig into a few of our past shows to look at technology and science in relation to how they affect kids.
1: First, we asked professor, author, and podcaster Anissa Ramirez why kids love science, at least little kids.
4: First of all, we all start off as scientists. We all start off curious. If you look at a four-year-old's hands, they're completely dirty because they're you know, engaging with the world. But then something happens, school happens, and we forget that we were curious beings and we feel like we need to worry about what we get on a test, and we don't really think about understanding. We think about just making sure that we regurgitate the right answer. And so as a science evangelist, what I'm trying to do is get us back in touch with our wonder Why is it that this happens? And I'm trying to give people permission to ask these questions again.
1: I'm the non-scientist in the room and and the guy who spent very little time thinking about the natural world and science. So convince me, about the importance of of science you said something really interesting which is that all kids are scientists That they're just curious about the world um i guess i glazed over at some point
4: well what i'm what i'm assuming is that a smaller version of richard used to ask lots of questions uh maybe questions like Uh, Why do snowflakes have the shape that they do? Why why is the sky blue? Those kinds of questions. And so that's what I mean when I say children start off as scientists. They're asking why, which is all science is really about asking why. And then we try and apply what we learn. And where we glaze over is that we have classes that teach things more... So that they're preparing us for trivial pursuit It's a random selection of facts that may not seem relevant to the questions that you're asking.
1: Now, a lot of education reformers are saying tests are the problem. Are tests the problem in this case?
4: Absolutely. I I, I like to say that we have a paralysis of analysis. The test used to be a way that we would just kind of evaluate what we were doing. But now we teach to the test. People's uh, salaries are linked to their performance on the test. So what they will do is make sure that children do well on the test. That has nothing to do with understanding and learning and wonder. That has to do with regurgitating facts so that you do well on the test.
3: So I, I can attest. I can attest to that since my wife was a, a middle school math teacher for for many years. But I'm also interested in this phenomenon we're seeing where um, girls and minorities tend to drop out of pursuing some of these fields by the time they get through schools, a lot of times people who enter interested in a certain field wind up dropping out of the sciences. So what are the things that contribute to this?
4: Well, I want to throw a question out at you. Uh, maybe you gentlemen can answer this. In In the 1890s, how many girls were in a STEM high school classroom?
1: Not many. <laughs> I mean – Oh, I don't okay. know. Maybe half.
4: It was 57%. Wow. So, this nonsense about girls not being able to do STEM is because we have no memory in the system. Girls used to rock STEM at one point. But what happened is the home economics movement came along, and what that did is it pulled all the girls out of classes like chemistry and physics. And when the home economics bubble collapsed, girls didn't have a place to go, and they also picked up the uh, rumor that they can't do STEM. And also, in terms of people of color, there's a tremendous history of people who've done great work uh... who are african-american scientists latino scientists uh... but that isn't taught and so all children need a mentor they need to look at somebody who's their north star and if you don't have a north star you feel like you're reinventing the wheel every time and you get discouraged that's reasonable for someone to think that they're the only one who's doing this to eventually just get discouraged
1: Anissa Ramirez, making the case for learning STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math.
3: And even though we all hate that term, it really is important. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Anissa is the author of Save Our Science and Newton's Football, a great book about the science of, of football. She's really passionate about making science fun for people of all ages. And she's got this great, really short
1: podcast called Science Underground. And- So listen to Her Fixes on episode 45. You can also find all of our podcasts on iTunes and HowDoWeFixIt.me. Last year, we spoke with developmental neuroscientist Abby Baird of Vassar College, who studies the teenage brain and is also the mother of twins. And she's really interested in the role of technology in kids' lives and how parents can
3: find the right balance between the good side of technology but you know, limit some of the potential downsides.
2: One of my closest friends, who's a software engineer, so it'd be kind of hypocritical to not let her kids engage in a lot of technical stuff. They have a, a board. Her two girls. They get electronic minutes for any non-electronic activity. So chores, being outside. They time all their stuff, and those rack up as electronic minutes. And so it's this checks and balances system that they have to maintain. And I've watched them both like go literally walk around in the backyard for forty-five minutes, so they can go in and play. But they go walk around for 45 minutes. So that's one family's way of coping with it. Right. I think it's important to find that balance. So
1: you rake the leaves for 15 minutes, they can go and play a game for half an hour. Sure. Steve Jobs had very little technology
3: in his house and really discouraged his kids. And a lot of leaders in the tech industry turn out to be somewhat on the conservative side. So they're not technophobes. Um, it's their business, but but they remain sort of uh, old school in terms of their sense of what's what's best for kids. and.
2: Well, one of the things when I, I heard that, one of the things I actually really, really wanted to know was maybe he may have been doing something very smart, which was um, waiting to make it more of a curiosity so that it's not a, um, something they're completely accustomed to. Because one of the things that really enhances learning at any age is the idea of discovery. And so if you've always grown up with a super programmed, high tech world, these things aren't terribly exciting to you. Whereas if you hit adolescence when your brain really starts to learn about the world and think in abstract ways and think in very, very novel ways, if that's the first time you're exposed to a lot of this stuff, it's going to be extra exciting. And so he may have been actually giving his kids a turbo boost by not holding off forever, but by creating something that's really like, hey, look at this at the right time.
1: For very young kids, Abby is somewhat of an agnostic on the risks versus the benefits of mobile devices and computers. She doesn't believe it's always best to keep children under three away from screens. That perhaps would be too extreme.
3: But we know one thing that's really interesting is she's a big fan of reading to kids from real paper books rather than e-readers.
2: Because of the number of senses in the brain that are being engaged. So when you read from a book, books have a tactile. You literally have to touch and move the page. You have to get your fingers in the same way that you would with an e-reader, you have to get your finger to the right location. But with a book, you have to literally pull the page over to the right spot. And then your eyes have to track and find uh, the right spot. A lot of e-readers will highlight where you're supposed to go, which for some kids is good. But a lot of kids visually figuring out where the words are when they're very small is important. Books also, believe it or not, smell. They have, mm-hmm. they have a, a full sensory experience to them. So I think an e-reader, I think once in a while they can be great. But the idea that they would replace books, I think, would be a very bad idea.
3: And it's not just things like reading or human interaction. Don't kids need to spend time, you know, picking up blades of grass and learning that that kind of tactile, physical, three-dimensional experience of the world?
2: Absolutely. Um, My my six-year-old son the other day built a very interesting primitive bow and arrow with um, a vine, a stick, and he was using pine cones, um, for the arrows, which were actually kind of great, because pine cones, you know, have natural hooks on them, so he could hook them anywhere. Now the vine had no elasticity, so mechanically this was a complete flop. But watching him engage in this, all I kept thinking was like, all right, keep going, keep going, <laughs> like you'll get the fundamentals of it. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's an app that could actually do that for him. But watching him do that, if he wanted to engage in an app later in the afternoon my mind would have been at ease.
3: You know, sometimes we try to give our kids way too much to do. Too much structured play, too many organized activities. We've heard about that from Lenore Skenazy and Tamara Mose in other shows. And Abby in this show makes
1: the case for boredom. <laughs> boredom, what a concept. We're hoping you're not experiencing it right now. Psychology professor Abigail Baird of Vassar College, a neuroscientist who studies the teenage brain and also our friend, Next to toy industry and play consultant, what a job. I want to be a job as a play consultant, uh, <laughs> Richard Gottlieb,
3: who we spoke to in episode 27. We discussed children and parents and how to relate to
1: technology.
5: When you think about it, all of us fall into one of three categories, and that's you're a digital native, and that's under like maybe 22, 23. Uh, you're a digital immigrant uh, like me, and, and you speak with an accent um, yeah, or you me. never made the trip. And you stayed back in the old uh, analog world. And I think what happens is when you have companies that are led by people who've never made the trip, it's very hard to grasp the fact that, that we've almost had an evolutionary change in children. They They don't see a bright line between what's virtual, what's digital, and what's real. I like to tell people, you know, you see a kid sitting in a restaurant with his family and he's head is stuck inside of his cell phone playing a game. And you think, what a crappy kid. (laughs) Uh, But the reality is, is he feels like his family's in there with him. He he doesn't feel like he's in a different space.
1: Are you concerned, Richard, about Toys that have scripted content, that instruct a child how to play, rather than just being completely open-ended, like, say, blocks or basic construction toys?
5: Uh, First of all, I'm agnostic on all forms of play. I I like to tell people that, you know, in the mid-19th century, when the novel first became popular, parents freaked out. (laughs) I don't know that they used the term freaked out in the mid-19th century, but... They did whatever the 19th they, they century They got the program.
3: vapors. They got
5: the vapors because their kids were, as they saw it, becoming antisocial. They didn't leave their room. Uh, and they got bad ideas. And I just think that anytime time we have a passage where children have access to the world and we can't control it as parents, it's extremely frightening. With this, I think that people go like, "Whoa, you know, <laughs> video games aren't literature, you know?" And I, I just I think a video games another form of another art form. Uh, and so I think these are just a, a, another way to play, another art form. I don't think we should fret about it.
3: There is a a concern some people have expressed that too much virtual play isolates kids from some of the lessons of operate in the physical world. Knocking over blocks in Angry Bird is not the same experience as knocking over your own block tower that you're trying to build to the ceiling. You know, you're not learning those spatial lessons about how the world works.
5: Well, I don't, I don't know that there's any law that says if you play with blo- virtual blocks, you can't play with physical blocks. I, I just think it's it's more, you know, that you have more ways to play. I think it's wonderful that children have all these choices. wish we had had all those choices.
1: Miranda Schaefer,
2: Richard. How have toys changed since you were a child? Um, do you, that's a subtle question asking you your age. Is it mine?
5: Well, you know, we played with the stick. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think that um, first of all, toys, toys were metal and they rusted. Uh, I remember that vaguely, uh, uh, and uh, you had to the oil of them, uh, uh, and that. Though plastic was present, it wasn't as present. It was considered kind of cheap at the time. And um, I think there was a lot more free play. We would just go outside in the morning and we'd come home for lunch and go out again. And nobody really knew where we were, what we were doing. The biggest difference between them when I was a kid was: is not the technology and it's not the different ways to play. It's that we were left alone. And today, children are hovered over. And in addition, uh, we went from nobody really caring about play to now adults thinking play is a waste of time.
1: Richard Gottlieb making the case for free time and unstructured play as a form of discovery about the physical world and ourselves, where we learn the lessons of life. Yeah, we really have to get Richard back for another show. Yeah, absolutely. Fix It Shorts, produced and edited by Miranda Schaefer, engineered by Denise Barbarita. Our shows are made by Davies Content. If you'd like to make a
3: podcast, go to DaviesContent.com.
1: That's the first time you've you've made that announcement. Mm -hmm. Thank you.